0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, the US government is offering up free penetration tests, but there is a catch. We break down the VTech break-in and the only sure way to protect your identity online. Then some really great questions, round up with a little breaking news, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 243 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly Systems Network and Administration Podcast. We streamed this episode live on December 3rd, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, sir. Wow, we were just talking on the pre-show about how long we've been doing this here dang show. Now, I yes. am proud to say 243 episodes in a stinking row.
1: Yeah.
0: That's amazing. That that's is pretty good. crazy. Like, I, uh, there, there's not There should be some sort of podcast hall of fame or something. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I can't think of anything else that's done that many in a row without missing a week.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I don't know. I probably maybe More once. reliable than the evening news. Maybe once ever has one even been under an hour. Ever, maybe? There was one that yeah. was
1: 58 like fi- minutes yeah. and
0: 37 seconds yeah. or something like that. That's crazy. So, and guess the what? number that had been over two hours oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: definitely yeah. offsets
0: that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so guess what? Big show today. Uh, we, we have some interesting things to cover, and I wasn't so sure since it was Turkey Day here recently in the U.S., and uh, so sometimes the news yeah, slows that down. some
1: slow news, but also because we pre
0: recorded the event, there was kind of two weeks of news. Yeah, so, so it did kind of I work think we did out. Did okay. And our first story this week starts over with Mr. Brian Krebs at Krebs on yes. Security with something that uh, the U.S. government's helping everybody out with. <laughs> yes. So the uh, U.S.
1: Department of Homeland Security uh, has been quietly launching stealthy cyber attacks against a range of private U.S. companies. Mostly banks and energy firms like oil companies and so on, and the, you know the power grid. Uh, these digital intrusion attempts uh, were specifically commissioned in advance by the private sector targets themselves. So the banks, you know, asked the DHS to do this, basically. Mm-hmm. Sure, I would imagine as part of a little-known program at the DHS uh, designed to help uh, critical infrastructure companies shore up their computer and network defenses against real-world adversaries. Wait a minute! And actually, that actually sounds kind of legit. Uh, and it's a free of charge well the u s taxpayers actually pay for it, <laughs> so it kind of seems like big banks and oil companies could afford to pay for such services by themselves, but as we dig into it more, it seems most of the places that are taking advantage of this are the smaller banks, like credit unions and so on, that maybe can't actually afford to do it themselves,
0: okay, all right.
1: Uh, So, Krebs on Security first learned about the DHS's uh, National Cybersecurity Assessment and Technical Services, or NCATS, uh, program after hearing from a risk manager at a small financial institution in eastern uh, U.S. The manager was comparing the free service offered by NCATS with private sector offerings and seeking Krebs' opinion on which one he should go with. Uh, Krebs asked around to a number of otherwise clueful sources who had no idea that this DHS program even existed.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I'd never heard of it.
1: Uh, hmm So the DHS uh, declined a request for interview about NCATS, but the agency has recently published some information uh, about the program. Uh, just a big PDF file here, uh, the acceptance letter when you apply for this service. Uh, according to DHS, the NCATS program offers full-scope penetration testing capabilities in the form of two separate programs. The first is a Risk and Vulnerability Assessment, or RVA, and the second is Cyber Hygiene evaluation. Uh, both are designed to help the partner organization better understand how external systems and infrastructure appear to potential attackers. So, the RVA program uh, reportedly scans the target's operating system, database, and web applications for known vulnerabilities, and then tests to see if any of these weaknesses found can be used to successfully compromise the target's system. In addition, RVA program partic- uh, participants receive scans for rogue wireless devices. And their employees are tested with social engineering attempts to see how employees respond to targeted phishing attacks. Hmm. So it sounds fairly basic, right? You know, scanning the, all the services and stuff that are exposed and checking their version numbers against vulnerability lists and yeah, so on. Yeah, sure, sure. It's typical stuff that, you know, uh, basically any, any noob in penetration testing can go and do. Uh, and then, you know, basically applying Metasploit to that to, oh, so you have this version of vulnerable thing. Let me see if I can use this to get a shell. Uh, but, you know, it's, I, you know, it's better than nothing.
0: <laughs> I, I, well, I was just going to say, I think a lot of times one of the things we've learned when we follow these stories is like, Geez, that's a basic thing you guys weren't taking care of. Like, you weren't patching yeah. Apache. Why weren't you installing patches? Like, a lot of times it's just it's, yeah. it's all it what? takes. And, you know, I, and I, 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 did a, I did a stint maybe two years um, where those essentially tools like Nessus and Nmap and Metasploit and a bunch of other little things and some commercial tools were what I used and people paid for it because it mm-hmm. does reveal a vulnerability they're not aware of. I I, I wonder though, Alan, uh is this uh, is this something though like th- should they be getting this for free? This seems like this seems like something they should be paying for.
1: Well, um uh, so, they, uh, they don't seem to give it to free to just anybody, but uh
0: you know? I mean, I guess if you did, if you charged them too much, then they wouldn't do it, right, so there's that right. aspect of it too, but
1: at the same time, if it's free, are they going to take the results they get from it seriously?
0: I wonder how binding the agreement is. I wonder if there's anything about follow up audits or anything like I that. i don't
1: think there's anything like that at all. yeah, here's some helpful information. maybe you'll use it, maybe you won't right uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know the one that I've had the most experience actually was with the um hacker safe or whatever, which I think is owned by McAfee, which is owned by Intel now, right? Uh, but it basically there's a little logo that would go on your website mm-hmm. uh, to, and basically they would scan your website all the time and check for vulnerable versions of PHP or, you know, if you had PHP, might have been at a predictable location or, you know, do a bunch of port scans and then it would alert you if you had anything it knew, known to be vulnerable. And uh, if you went 30 days without patching it, then Rather than putting some logo that would say your site was unsafe or something, it would just turn to a transparent GIF that did nothing.
0: <laughs> so they just wouldn't say well, it was you, safe.
1: you are paying them for the service. So it would say hacker safe with today's date if you were still in good standing or if your bad standing was less than 30 days old uh, and then otherwise it would just be invisible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, the number of times It would be nice I if died. it
0: turned red. <laughs> I know they won't do it because then you wouldn't pay for it, but...
1: exactly. Um, <laughs> But, you know, the number of false positives and just silly things I had to clean up because of that or, you know.
0: Oh. Tell oh, really?
1: Tell SSH to stop saying its version number when you connect.
0: So, it is, you're saying it's just you know, a business. Like, but,
1: yeah, basically, it was all bullshit. Like, uh, it would check the version of OpenSSL. But if you're using Red Hat, it reports a really old version of OpenSSL where they backported the fixes. And so... Uh, you know, it would set off the vulnerability scanner every time, saying, "Oh, vulnerable version of SSL from five years ago." It's like, actually, no, it's
0: patched. It's fine. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. That is tricky with some of those uh, enterprise-grade distros. Yeah. So this uh, is pretty and interesting. Now. Checking
1: for rogue wireless devices. That one seems like that would involve actually them coming to the office and doing it.
0: Yeah, would we would have to? Yeah. Uh,
1: And then they have the Cyber Hygiene Program, uh, which is currently mandatory for all agencies in the federal uh, civilian executive branch, but optional for private sector and state, local, and tribal stakeholders. Uh, This one includes both internal and external vulnerability and web application scanning. Uh, So so in the chat room, they asked uh, who gets the results. Uh, In addition to the NSA, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, and the Place that got scanned. Uh, the DHS releases a yearly end of year report with uh, anonymized uh, aggregate, non-attributable information. So they basically once a year they publish a report on the findings overall against all the scans they did, rather than you know specifically to not reveal anything specific about any one scan that they did. But yeah, they have a breakdown of numbers and stuff from all the different uh, things that they check. What is H?
0: 323,
1: so that's Q391 Is I'm that like a sip? some
0: like voice thing? Uh, that h actually, dot t- is it, or is that H3 uh, uh, no, I don't know what H323 is. Yes, it
1: is the one for internet real-time net meeting and voice over IP. Yes. Jeez, it's, it's pretty it's common. PBX, yeah. Yeah, PBX is okay. And then TWRPC. I forget the one is remote procedure call for something. Yeah. Interesting to see someone test his age, which is, you know, obviously they're using some Unix in there somewhere. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, looking at the thing, they found that uh, manual testing was required to identify 67% of the RBA uh, vulnerabilities findings as opposed to, you know, off-the-shelf automated vulnerability scans. So obviously they have people actually doing some poking around, not just running Nessus. Okay. Uh, because, you know, some of them they had to dig a little deeper to find it. Right. Uh is it, uh, but, you know, maybe that's just a problem with our automated tools, really. <laughs> uh, more than 50% of the total 344 different vulnerabilities found during the scans in uh, fiscal year 2014 uh, uh, earned a severity rating of high or critical. So 40% were high and 13% were critical. So that's quite a bit. Uh, the RVA phishing emails had a click rate of about 25%. So about a quarter of all the people they sent phish, uh, targeted phishing hmm. emails to fell for them, which is quite a lot,
0: right? Yeah.
1: Uh, 46% of the RBAs resulted, uh, of the people that went through the phishing thing, resulted in easily guessable credentials finding. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> bad, all bad those words. people that use, are, uh, that fell for the phishing, about half of them had horrible passwords in the first place. Yeah. Hmm that we probably could have just guessed and didn't even need to fish.
0: That surprise, surprise.
1: (laughs) So Krebs says, uh, I was curious to know how many private sector companies have taken DHS up on its rather generous offer since these uh, services can be quite expensive if conducted by private companies. In response to questions about uh, that from Krebs, the DHS said that in fiscal year 2015, NCATS provided support to 53 private sector partners uh, according to data provided by the DHS, the majority of the program's private sector participation came from the energy and financial services industry, hmm. with the latter typically at regional or smaller institutions such as credit unions. So it wasn't really the big banks that were that were taking up on this. It was the small ones.
0: Yeah, as somebody who kind of prefers credit unions, uh, that kind of mm-hmm. makes me feel better. I'm glad they're taking advantage of a system like this. Well, yeah,
1: especially with a credit union, you know, they don't have the same budget to yeah, exactly on stuff.
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: Um, asking the penetration testing industry uh, what it thought about the DHS offering a free service, Dave Itell, who's the chief technology officer at Immunity Incorporated.
0: That was kind of my question.
1: Uh, which is a Miami, Florida based company that offers things like NCATS. Uh, he said, DHS is a big player in the regulation policy area about this type of stuff, right? And the last thing we need is an uninformed DHS that has little technical expertise in this area. Uh, that penetration testing covers. So the the more DHS understands about the realities of information security on the ground, and the more it treats American companies as their customers, the better and less impactful their policy regulations will be. Hmm, uh, we fair. always say that offense is the professor of defense. <laughs> and in this case, without uh, having gone on the offense, DHS would be helpless to suggest remedies to the critical infrastructure companies. So I guess he's what, saying, oh, hopefully uh, yeah. the fact that the DHS is now doing pen testing gives them a better idea of what's actually involved so that they can suggest laws that aren't totally ridiculous.
0: Oh, I hadn't, okay. I was just thinking, I mean, if nothing else, this is, you got to start somewhere getting this technical experience. You got to, you got to. Right.
1: And, and importantly, the DHS needs this if they're going to be setting the laws for how this gets done.
0: And I reminded too, from our conversation about CISA, that CISA is run through the DHS Mm-hmm. So they they are stepping up more and, and more. And it's actually
1: mentioned later in the, in my notes here. Oh, okay.
0: Interesting. Go uh, ahead.
1: yeah. So even if the DHS team doing the work is great, part of the value of an expensive penetration test is that companies feel obligated to follow the recommendations that improve their security. <laughs> Does the data found by a DHS testing team affect a company's SEC liabilities in any way? Right? If you're found to be vulnerable and you don't fix it, shouldn't your shareholders find out about that, right? Mm. Uh, what if the government gets access to customer data during a penetration test? What legal ramifications does that have? Right? If the government manages to get to the customer data, then you know, that's the same as, as a bad guy. It basically means a bad guy could have done it as well. And mm. so you know, the, are you just as liable now? Or you know, Should mm. the companies have to pay a fine because they're obviously not doing good enough or something? Or at least go through all the regular breach notification stuff?
0: Right. Yeah. That is, a, uh, that is a challenging. Boy, that, that and CISA, not to stop, but that and CISA, mm-hmm. it really adds, there is a complex layer that adds to that.
1: Yeah. And there's a, uh, you know, uh, during penetration, what legal, uh, this is a common event and pre CISPA, it may carry significant liabilities, right? And it, with the CISO, CISPA type thing, then sharing that data with the government isn't a problem. But before, no, I, I guess it,
0: right? yeah. CISA it, it involves the demnification of sharing certain types of information. But what I was thinking more of is the government essentially. This is getting you know a little tinfoil hat of here. But the government will essentially have over time a database of different vulnerabilities for different corporations. And then the way the way CISA works is the DHS can freely distribute that with the NSA or the CIA or the FBI, anybody that might want to compromise something for, I don't know, maybe they want to get access to an encrypted phone or something like that. Yeah, they, look at somebody's bank account without a warrant and so on. They, Because of the way, CISA, the way CISA is written, can just freely share that information now. So essentially, the way CISA has enabled things is once the DHS has information about something, any agency, any employee, and any contractor of the federal government now has a, now can get access to that information.
1: Mm-hmm. And you know, if you extend that to the point where you know, I, well, I guess I'll get my next point first. Okay. Uh, so I tell who's the guy that was uh, Krebs was asking, who's a former research scientist at the NSA raised another issue. Any vulnerabilities found anywhere within the government, for example, in a piece of third party software, are supposed to go to the NSA for triage. And sometimes the NSA is later able to use these vulnerabilities in clandestine cyber offensive operations. Right? So they find this vulnerability at, you know, an American bank, and they're like, oh, we can use this to break into a, a Russian bank. Exactly.
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, that's good. And then, that's good in some ways, I guess.
1: Yeah. Uh but what About previously unknown vulnerabilities found by DHS examiners. This may be less of an issue when DHS uses a third party team, but if they use a DHS team and they find a bug and say Microsoft IIS, the web server, they're not going to give that to the customer, they're going to give that to the NSA. Right? And then, you know, if eventually Microsoft finds out about it, then maybe the NSA is forcing them to not issue a patch until somebody other than the US government is using it offensively. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it raises some questions there. And you know, once the NSA has this information, shouldn't we make them definitely tell Microsoft so that it can be patched, as opposed to let's keep this vulnerability around so we can use it at will?
0: Right, and we're gonna we'll have a story uh, in the roundup about some medical devices that have wide deployment. That have long-standing vulnerabilities in them now, and these kinds of penetration testings—they've become aware of that. I mean, this is going to be a massive source of data collection. It's a good resource too. I mean, I, th- I don't want to—I don't want to undermine that either. I mean, I th- I'm glad that smaller financial institutions are taking advantage of it. I, you know, I—I I know that that when I worked at a smaller financial institution, that would have been kind of a nice thing. We spent a ton of money on that kind of stuff, uh, just to be yep. compliant. And I think they did it, you know as much as they could just by the letter of the law and not really by the spirit of the law often because of the cost.
1: Yeah, and that's basically where our next point comes in. Uh, Alan Poller, who's the director of research at SANS, which is they do training courses on this kind of stuff and certifications. Uh, They say the NCATS program could be an excellent service that does a lot of good, but it isn't. (laughs) The problem is that it measures only a very limited subset of the vulnerability space and comes with a gold-plated get-out-of-jail-free card. Right, we did our small, homework. The small bank can now say the U.S. government came and checked us out, so we're all good, and we don't need to spend any more money on network security. We don't need to get any other penetration tests, yeah. or audits or anything. The U.S. government came and gave us the gold check mark. We we're done. Nothing else to do. Everything's perfect. Meanwhile, you know the NSA test only covers some very basic things and not more in depth things, and you know doesn't cover things like having a, a system in place to. Once you do get broken into, being able to isolate that, lock it down, and, and recover from it, and you know, detect when data is trying to leave your network and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they say that they're doing it only for organizations that cannot afford commercial assessments, but they often go to organizations that have deep pockets as well. So I can definitely see this being used as an excuse to spend less money on network security. Yeah, I suppose well. you might be right. You know. If you if you can manage to, you know, especially with these like semi-automated tests or whatever, you just go, you disable the version banner stuff so they can't tell what version of OpenSSL you're using. You can so you pass the that test. stuff. Yeah. So you pass the test and you're good. And, uh, you know, I saw the, um, they have the, uh, what do you call the terms for roar? the rules of engagement mm-hmm. uh, and so on. And, you know. The DHS gives you like, this is the IP range that all of our intrusion attempts will come from, you know, and a bunch of others. It's like, well, you know, maybe I just add my firewall. Hey, don't let anybody from that IP range get anywhere near this critical system that's not very secure, and I'll pass the test.
0: Now you're bumming me out. Because I think you're probably nailing it. It's a good
1: start, but, you know, the best pen testers are never going to be working for the government, so...
0: Yeah, part of me feels like it's better than nothing. At the same time, yeah. it could also it could also create a false sense of security.
1: Exactly, and so it's a lot of it's information. A good start, but people need to to realize that there's a lot more to it, and
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, mm-hmm. this isn't that. you know. Hopefully, this is never seen as the gold-plated get out of jail free card.
0: Yeah, it's not like the next version of that badge on your website.
1: But uh, at the same time. You know, it'd be curious to know, has anyone ever actually passed one of these tests?
0: Yeah. You know, it, it would be great if there was a, a, a little more. Well, they inter-
1: have this uh, yearly report, but yeah, it but mostly just says, yeah. we found this many different vulnerabilities, mm-hmm. not, I you know, want. I don't want average, a real time you know, dashboard. The best, the best scan we did showed that, you know, they had only these small issues, and the worst scan was, you know, they failed every single thing. <laughs>
0: I'm ready for a real-time dashboard with uh, pew-pews going, lighting off uh, as uh, as as their scans uh, are going. Uh, uh, Norse has one of those. Yeah, things. exactly, like Norse's. Yeah, <laughs> you, you got what I'm putting down. All right, well, Alan, you know what? Server management doesn't have to be tough. Just ask our friends over at DigitalOcean, sponsor of the TechSnap program. Use our promo code SNAPOcean, and you get a $10 credit. That's one word, lowercase. Just put that in there, apply it to your account, and you'd be rocking. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own server. You can get started in less than 55 seconds, and pricing plans start at only $5 a month. It gets you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. DigitalOcean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Mm -hmm. Germany, and Toronto. I love the DigitalOcean interface. It's a really great UI to manage all of the things you would need, like one-click deployment of things like Cassandra, or Docker, or Elk, or LAMP, or Joomla, or GitLab, or Ghost, or Drone, or Dooku, or FreeBSD. Yep, they have a whole selection of uh, FreeBSD um, tutorials. Oh, tutorials, yeah, tons of tutorials too. So on the screen right now, if you're watching the video version, I'm showing you all the uh, different uh, one-click applications you can deploy on uh, a DigitalOcean droplet. I love MediaWiki because if you want to just get rolling with a wiki and you want on a $5 droplet for your company, that's a no-brainer. OwnCloud, one-click deployment of OwnCloud. Again, another no-brainer. And then, last but not least, the champion, WordPress. One-click deployment of WordPress. You get started for $5 a month with their crazy great control panel and their API that lets you move that stuff even more on a, at an automated level. Integrate it with your Im- infrastructure for management, Put it in a Python script. They have a really great API with great documentation, like Alan was saying. Really good tutorials, too, to help you take advantage of it even further. It is really a great service. Very fast rigs. They're all SSDs. 40 gigabit e-connections to the hypervisors. Really, really clever locations throughout the world. Go check them out and use the promo code SNAPOCEAN. Get a $10 credit. I use them for a Minecraft server, a SyncThing server, an own cloud server, a BitTorrent Sync, Server, a remote desktop server, an MB server, a uh from time to time a uh a stun server so I can do video calls with Noah. I mean the list goes on and on and all kinds of different things you can use it for. So go to digitalocean.com and use the promo code SNAPOcean. That'll support the TechSnap program and give you a ten dollar credit. And a big thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap Show. Go get yourself a free BSD rig up in the cloud. Go try it out. Now, Alan, uh, everybody knows we have to talk about this story this week, because this is one of the largest hacks yet of things that sort of expose children, Mm -hmm. Uh, because it's a children's toy maker of VTech. They make, like, monitoring devices and cameras and I think even, like, little robot toy thingies for kids to play with.
1: Well, of course, they have this, you know, online community thing where they, you know, collected
0: pictures of people and kids. What the (laughs) hell, Alan? So what's going on with VTech?
1: Yeah, uh, so basically there was a compromise of their database and uh, the information leaked includes the name, email address, password, and home address of 4.8 million parents uh, who have bought VTech uh, toys or whatever. And tablets uh, too. Which uh, VTech made uh, $2 billion in revenue in the last year, so they sold quite a bit. Uh, The dump also includes the first name, gender, and birthdays of more than 200,000 kids. Wow. Wow. the biggest problem is that those children can be linked back to the parent's account and then you would have their first name, last name, and home address. Uh, So it really questions why they needed that information and why those things were able to be linked together like that. Yeah. You know, like, I can understand they purposely didn't collect the last name of the kid, but if they also collected the address in some other way and in a way that could be connected together, then that's kind of a problem, right?
0: It's ridiculous. Uh,
1: mm Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, uh, if you go to the Vice story about it, uh, I think it's the one of the two. Anyway, the whole like top headline of it is a bunch of uh, redacted pictures of parents. And oh, kids. really? I'll I'll look yeah. for that. Oh, interesting. Uh, but yeah. Uh, according to haveibeenpwned.com, dot com, this is the fourth largest consumer data breach to date. Uh, <laughs> That website is uh, most well known, uh, is the most well-known repository of data breaches online, which allows users to check if their email address or password have been compromised in a publicly known hack.
0: Top so 10 breaches, your- Adobe accounts. Number mm-hmm. two, Ashley Madison. <laughs> VTech yep. comes in at number four. Look yep. at that. Just beating out
1: uh, mail.ru yeah. and the Bitcoin security forum.
0: Yeah, and then the Snapchat accounts is uh, like yep. wait, a little bit further down. Funny enough.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and you can basically type in your email address there and it'll check all those breaches to see if you're already on them. Uh,
0: I don't yeah, want you yeah, to put is, mine in there, I know.
1: <laughs> but they say what's worse is possible to link the children to their parents, exposing their full address. And so, also, when they were, uh, where they live, and according to experts, you know, a bunch of other information could all be cobbled together basically. Oh, on that. yeah.
0: I mean, there's that aspect of it that concerns mm-hmm. me. But then the thing that really bothers me is that they stored this information and that there's pictures and things like that. Yeah. I mean, that's... And,
1: and, well, and the worst part is no SSL at all on any of it. So you didn't even have to break into the database to get this. You could have just sniffed the traffic because <sighs> it was all plain text over the internet. There's no excuse for that at all. You know, I, I love the company's comment. It was like, our security turned out to not be as good as it should have been. It's, like, well, <laughs> it's like, no, you were actually completely negligent. <laughs> we were, <laughs> we were not
0: aware of this unauthorized access until you alerted us.
1: Yeah. So only
0: once Motherboard,
1: so um, Vice was contacted by the attacker with the information and then the motherboard.device.com went to VTech and said, hey, I have all this stuff, uh, you know, a I, I, hacker over here says he stole all this stuff from you and they're what like, oh, yeah, it turns out he did. We <laughs> look at that, we've got a
0: we login on this file over, hey, did you know this thing was still logging? That's how what it sounds like. It's ridiculous.
1: Yeah. Uh, the hacker who claimed responsibility for the breach provided files containing the sensitive data to Motherboard last week. VTech then confirmed the breach in an email on Thursday, uh, days after Motherboard reached out to the company for amazing. comment. Amazing, amazing. Uh, so on November 14th, which is Hong Kong time, so I I think that would be the 13th here. An unauthorized party access VTech customer data on our Learning Lodge app store customer database.
0: Learning Lodge, how cute. Yes,
1: so I'm guessing there is, uh, you know, it, they say uh, Motherboard asked the attacker what he plans to do with the data and they simply answered nothing. The hacker claims to have shared the data only with Motherboard.com or Motherboard.vice.com although it could have easily been sold online for quite a bit of money as well. You know, with the full addresses and stuff. That's yeah, why do you right go to the legal something?
0: risk for nothing? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, well, maybe because the hacker's kid had one of these toys and they noticed all the problems. Hard to say. Oh,
0: you know, I, I could
1: see that. Uh, when pressed, VTech did not provide any details on the attack, but the attacker who requested anonymity told Motherboard that they gained access by, to the company's database using a technique called SQL injection. So, so the basics. Yeah. Yes, like super basic. <laughs> Um, Damn it. (laughs) Which is also known as SQLi. Separately, uh, Motherboard has a whole article from uh, two weeks ago, a week ago, that I planned to cover on TechSnap, but kind of got superseded by this article. Uh, The history of SQL injection, the hack that will never go away. No kidding. So if you've ever wondered a bit more about uh, what SQL injection is, they have a nice story here where they've
0: broken it down and uh, made it easy to understand. You know, it is amazing how many high-profile attacks uh, our SQL injections. Like, wasn't wasn't Almost the... All. The Tok Tok one? That's the one I was trying to think of. Yeah, the Tok Tok yeah. one. Yeah, and then and it's massive cyber mastermind attacker. And no, no. No, it's a 13-year-old kid that figured out that if you put a semicolon in one of these fields, you can do whatever the hell you want. And it just keeps happening. hmm and- Over and
1: over and over. And hence their story, the history of SQL injection, <laughs> <laughs> the hack that will never go away. Uh, also, the passwords were not stored in plain text, but were hashed. Uh, but... With MD5, it's not clear whether it was actually MD5 or MD5 crypt. Most likely, just plain MD5, which makes it terrible, completely, and utterly terrible. Yeah. Uh, rainbow tables, and you know, because this was for a Kitty app store, I'm sure most of the passwords are terrible as well. L- uh, Learning so,
0: Lodge, Alan. Learning yes. Lodge.
1: Learning Lodge app store. <laughs> uh, you, yeah, a rainbow table in a couple of minutes, and I'm sure you would have a huge number of those passwords. It's terrible. Uh, if they're using MD5 Crypt, at least that's better, but it just means you would rent some video <sighs> cards off of Amazon and, and break it in not that much time.
0: This motherboard article says you could teach a four-year-old to do a SQL injection attack.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I think you he's can. probably
0: right. You can write it. You probably could. Like
1: Literally, in the login box, sometimes you type a semicolon and then one or one or whatever, and boom, you're done. It was really that. The the
0: other thing when this, you know, I mean, this is probably nothing to worry about, but when it's this simple, you do have to worry if it's maybe been done by somebody else. And if they didn't know about it until somebody told them. Yeah. That seems like a possibility to me.
1: Well, because it just seems like how would you not notice that, oh, somebody, well, I guess 4 million records is only probably a couple of megabytes. But if
0: you get the photos too, that's some serious data transfer. So you have to, yeah, you have to like.
1: How come you didn't notice your database was all of a sudden. Pumping out a lot more traffic than usual. Yeah,
0: like you didn't you didn't notice things were going a little slow? <laughs> yeah, or,
1: well, I don't know. My Nagios alerts me when servers that yeah, aren't right, expected yeah. to start sending a lot of traffic to the internet because I get billed for that, and so I want to know whenever that happens. Uh, they say, Moreover, the secret questions used for password or account recovery were also stored in plain text, meaning attackers could potentially use this information to try and reset the passwords for other accounts belonging to the user. Right? So because they have your secret question and answer, they can then take that email address and try your Facebook and Twitter and Gmail and Amazon or whatever. And when they get asked maybe the same secret question, they already know the answer.
0: And bada boom, bada bing, and now they have your account. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we talked about it, uh, was it last week, uh, where Amazon preemptively resets some accounts because... Uh, they took a look at the uh, email address that people used to log in and somehow knew what their Amazon password was and then checked some of these recent password databases and saw that the same password had been used, and so they preemptively reset. Yep. Now, the question I had there is how did Amazon know it was the same password that your Amazon account uses?
1: Well, they, it's, even if it's cryptographically hashed, if you have the salt… And the plain text password, you can put those two together, try it, and if it comes out to the oh, same Oh, right, pass, yeah, because cool. they would
0: have the plain text password from the leak. Yeah, right, yeah, okay, so yeah, 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 That's the part I was like, but of course, the they'd way. have it from the leak. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah, okay. yeah.
1: Uh, and yeah, I had actually considered years ago, remember I asked uh, for volunteers to build some project I hadn't told people about yet? It was actually a, a federated database kind of like this um, have I been pwned, but for the people running the sites and basically when a user set their password, you would send uh, something. I don't know if it was gonna be the plain text or what. I hadn't figured that out. But we would basically check it against every known breach database that we had access to and you know, hash it in all the different ways and see does this match any of these known things and be like, sorry, the password you're trying to use has been you know exposed in a breach previously. You can't use that password. Clever. Yeah.
0: Hmm. But anyway. So, any other thoughts on this story?
1: Uh, so, they meant because they could, uh, the secret questions could give them access to a bank account as well. Mm. They say also, VTech didn't use SSL web encryption anywhere <laughs> and transmits data as uh, including passwords. Not even the, the Learning Lodge, protection. Alan? Yep. Well, the bigger
0: question is so, the Learning Lodge is a store and you buy stuff. Is it doing credit cards without SSL? Maybe on the app version, like on the tablets it is. Uh,
1: I don't know. It's hard to say, but that's just terrible. Uh, so Motherboard also had a second follow-up article about that. Uh, ZDNet had coverage, uh, the register as well because mm-hmm. they found... Uh, it's that, all over. Uh, well, the all news the came out and then after a couple of days, it turns out it was much worse than that as almost always happens. Yeah. <laughs> it never turns out that it was better. <laughs> um, and then separately, uh, another story that, uh, we didn't, that it probably does. would have Maybe just been rounded, up, but I stuck it in here because it's related. Oh, yeah? Uh, another researcher claims to have hacked the Hello Barbie uh, toys and been oh. able to extract the MP3 recordings of your kid's voice when they talk to the Barbie. Good.
0: That's wonderful. Like that. that is a seven seven forty dollars seventy Wi-Fi equipped interactive doll. What could go wrong, Alan? What could go yeah, wrong?
1: Basically you press the button and talk to it, and then it makes a recording of that, sends it off to the internet uh, where it gets processed, and then it makes the Barbie say something back to you. But it turns out that by hacking it, you can steal you know, what all the Wi-Fi name and password and everything at the place where the
0: kid is, uh, every, be recordings of things they've said
1: and Ugh. a bunch of things like that. This is
0: the worst. This is going to be a nightmare for a few years, isn't it? We're just going to be... Uh, well,
1: what's really interesting is if you had, say, Google's giant database of Wi-Fi SSIDs and, and network names, which are matched to GPS coordinates... And then you had, it was like, oh, so I know this kid has on the Wi-Fi this. And then, you know, look up the Mac address in Google's database, which they don't give out. Uh, So not actually possible at the moment. But that then you could basically know exactly where the kid is now as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, Creepy thought, Alan. Uh, I was just thinking, like, we're going to go through years now of, like, these really cheaply done tablets with these cheap back-end infrastructures. And it's just... I didn't think about the Wi-Fi Barbie though. I didn't think about that. Scratching that off the Christmas list, Alan. I'll tell you, a no Wi-Fi Barbie. All right, now we're good to go. All right. Well, why don't we take a moment and tell you about something that should be on your Christmas list? IX Systems. This would solve yes. a few headaches. I tell you what. Put a free NAS under the Christmas tree. <laughs> mm-hmm. <Free laughs> NAS Mini. Great? They they dropped the price of the free NASS Mini on Amazon for Black Friday. Oh. Probably still there. IXSystems.com/techsnaps where you go to support this show and learn more about. Getting a server for your business—the ultimate guide to buying a new server for open-source work tasks—is right up there on that site. Check them out at ixsystems.com/slash-techsnap. They build rigs from like the free NAS mini all the way up to the super high-end, crazy, crazy powerful stuff for yes. all kinds of workloads. You check out their what's new page. They just
1: built a one petabyte NAS for NASA. So
0: what? A yeah. one pe- Can they can they build that for Chris? And it's expandable up to four petabytes. They have to build that for Chris. Also, and it takes less rack space than all the competing solutions, and costs fifty percent less money. And that doesn't even—that's not even talking about how incredible their support is or their engineering staff. I mean, it really is an incredible combo. And they just posted one of their uh, mission complete uh, stories. Yes. So uh, they've been collecting these mission complete stories
1: about how you solved a problem or completed su- some thing you were trying to do using open source or free NAS or ZFS or whatever. Uh, and yes, this month's is about a uh, movie production company. So the guy was a computer graphics artist for movie type stuff, doing animations and so on. Uh, and you know, he normally just did his animations to an external drive connected to his Mac. But then he teamed up with a, another guy, a documentary filmmaker, and they were trying to like share that drive by like sharing it on the Mac and it was all terrible. And you know, if something happened to that drive, the disk dies or lose it or don't have whatever terrible 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 you know you lose all the work on the movie it'd be horrible uh so they replaced it with a free nas mini you know or uh, sorry they built their own free nas server and you know stuck a bunch of drives in it and now not only do they have the zfs redundancy and the fact that you know it's not going to bit rot and screw up their animations it means that they can share it all over the network and it's going to be a lot faster than that external drive and everything kidding better
0: Mission complete. Spin the Yarn Productions. You can check it out on the iXsystems.com blog. Just do us a favor and stop by iXsystems.com slash TechSnap first. Maybe check out that white paper and give them a call and tell them the TechSnap show sent you. This is mm-hmm. a game changer. Just get, if you've ever really been frustrated with your hardware provider or wish it could be a little bit better or wish there was somebody you could bounce a question off of that would give you an actually genuinely good answer that took your workload and your unique edge case into account, I encourage you to check out IX Systems. Go to ixsystems.com/slash TechSnap. and a big thanks to IX Systems for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Yeah, also good.
1: IXSystems.com/slash mission complete and sending your story. Oh so yeah, that you can win a prize for the December contest. Absolutely, what could be better than a Christmas prize from IX.
0: Ooh. Okay, Alan. So uh, this next story is probably going to convince me to get a freeze, a credit freeze. That is, that's actually probably a pretty good idea, isn't it?
1: Mm-hmm. I'm ready. Yes. Uh, so, Krebs has frequently urged uh, his readers to place a security freeze on their credit file as a means of protect, uh, proactively preventing identity theft. Now, a major consumer advocacy group uh, has recommended the same thing. The U.S. Public Interest Research Group uh, recently called, uh, issued a call for all consumers to request credit file freezes before becoming victims of ID theft. So, basically, the theft, the um, credit monitoring services that everybody gives away when you are the victim of a breach or whatever, these basically tell you maybe a week after somebody has tried to f- get a credit card in your name or whatever.
0: Yeah, it's like a, it, it it tells you well after the fact because the data <laughs> to them is delayed.
1: Yeah. Uh, whereas if you put a freeze on it, no one's allowed to look at your credit report. So it means you can't apply for a new credit card to unfreeze it or... You can, like, there's a way to do a temporary unfreeze or something. Anyway, um, I'll get to it in a minute, but Krebs has an FAQ on his website that explains all the details of how to do it, how to deal with the fact that, oh, I would like to take out a loan or, you know, buy a car or get a credit card or whatever, and how to do it. Uh, so all the details are on his FAQ about that. So. But basically, if you put the credit freeze on, then basically, as soon as someone tries to apply... Uh, when the bank or whatever does uh, goes to look at your credit report, they're told no, and uh, that stops it before it can happen. Uh, so, so each time uh, news of a major data breach breaks, the hacked organization arranges free credit monitoring for all customers potentially at risk from the intrusion. But as I've echoed time and again, credit monitoring services do little if anything to stop these from stealing your identity. The best you can hope for from these services is they will alert you when a thief opens or tries to open a new line of credit in your name. Uh, but with a security freeze on your credit file at the top four credit bureaus, creditors won't be able to look at your file in order to grant the phony new line of credit uh, to the right. ID thieves. And so you're, you know, they won't be able to pull it off. Uh, these constant breaches reveal what's wrong with data security and data breach responses. Agencies and companies hold too much information for too long and don't protect it adequately. Uh, so there's a whole report here from that uh, public interest research group. Uh, and they say, uh, then they might wait months or even years before actually informing the victims that the data has been stolen. Uh, then they make things worse by offering weak, short-term help, such as credit monitoring services. Hmm. And then Kribs goes on, uh, whether your personal information, ha- information has been stolen or not, your best protection against someone opening a new credit account in your name is a security freeze. Uh, not the often offered underachieving credit monitoring. Paid credit monitoring services in particular are not necessary because federal law requires each of the three major credit bureaus to provide a free credit report every year for all customers who request one. They can use these free reports to do kind of a do-it-yourself version of credit monitoring. Yeah, no
0: kidding. Uh, So so it doesn't sound like it's also a big deal to set one of these up either.
1: Uh, So he has the FAQ here. Depending on what state you live in, uh, it's either free, but you have to have a police report or an affidavit saying your identity has been stolen, uh, or it's like a 10 or $15 fee for each
0: of the um, credit bureaus. Yeah, go, going by just some of the comments on his blog, it looks like for some folks, it's pretty straightforward.
1: Yeah. Uh, and yeah, a lot of them report being able to do it online uh, versus having to do... You know, call them or send a letter or something like that. So I guess it
0: goes without saying that this would work best if you know you don't plan to have your credit checked or something like that for a while. Which, by the way, could be things like signing up for a cell phone, getting insurance, uh, changing your insurance, or maybe even opening a bank account. Things like that all could check your credit. A lot of things check your credit now. Mm -hmm. So Uh, there's that.
1: So yeah, and that can cause a problem. Uh, Sometimes, you know, when they get back that oh it's frozen, sometimes they'll go ahead anyway, and sometimes they won't. Uh, you know, oftentimes in Canada, insurance usually doesn't check your credit. But if you haven't had insurance before, it's quite a pain to get insurance.
0: Cleverwise in the chat room says you can also get temporary unlocks for a period of time. That's yes, interesting. so
1: oftentimes you can do that. So basically, what you do is you find out which uh, credit monitoring service or credit bureau the bank. That you're applying for a credit card at is going to check with and then you call them up and get you know say for the next day or week or whatever let that bank go through and check my credit report uh so because it's me applying for it uh, and then it'll be right. immediately after but
0: if you are fairly set and steady on your on your credit usage and you mm-hmm. want to take the ultimate step of protection this seems like this yeah. seems like a flip all this is like a it's moving the switch from on to off and there's just no way you can do anything with it when it's in the off position yeah, It seems like a, it, like the, the ultimate safe step. Because uh, as
1: Krebs goes on in this FAQ, there are, uh, I think, fraud alerts you can put in your credit report, which specifically asks any bank that's looking at your credit report to issue credit to first call you on the number you give them before giving out the credit. But it's only an advisory; They're not legally required to do it. So it might not actually work. Whereas freezing it means the credit bureau doesn't let the bank look at it at all and so the bank is more than likely not going to give out any credit. Uh, But Krebs goes on with a story about him. It's like, you know, the bank wanted all this information when he was, uh, he hadn't frozen his thing when he had his identity stolen and uh, basically the banks were like trying to, all this strict verification that he was actually Krebs and it's like, well, if you'd done this much checking before you gave out the (laughs) money, (laughs) no kidding, we wouldn't be in this situation. Nailed it. But you know, the banks make money off this, so they're, you know, they want to give you the credit card and, and reduce friction here, right? Absolutely. But anyway, uh, Krebs has a great uh, FAQ there that answers most of the questions you might have about it. Uh, he also talks about uh, a similar service that's not part of the credit checks, but can notify you when someone tries to open a checking or saving account in your name, because those often do not involve a credit check unless you're getting like uh, overdraft protection.
0: Okay, good to know. Uh, yeah. Uh, at the, uh, one of right the now? interesting things mm-hmm. is
1: that once you put a security freeze on your credit file, it also breaks credit monitoring. Oh, yeah, I would imagine because the monitoring service can't keep checking your credit report yeah. anymore because they're now blocked as well. Yeah. So Krebs Reader wrote in: uh, I-, "I just received official notification that I am affected by the OPM data breach. I attempted to sign up for credit monitoring services with the OPM uh, contractor ID experts." Uh, but was denied this service because I have a credit security freeze. I was there told by ID experts that the OPM yeah. credit monitoring service will not work for accounts that have a security freeze.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because they can't check it.
1: Yeah. So he says, This supports my decision to issue a security freeze on all my credit accounts. And in my assessment, completely undermines the utility and value of the OPM's credit monitoring service when individuals can simply issue a security freeze, which is stronger. This inability to monitor a person's credit file when a freeze is in place speaks volumes about the effectiveness of the freeze in blocking anyone, ID protection firms or ID thieves, uh, from viewing your file. Hmm. So then Krebs goes on. Because uh, some people had asked about, oh, so I guess I have to remove the credit freeze in order to use the monitoring. He's like, removing a security freeze to enable credit monitoring is foolhardy because the freeze offers more comprehensive protection against ID theft. Credit monitoring services are useful for cleaning up after your credit has already been stolen. Uh, but they generally do nothing to stop these from applying for opening new lines of credit in your name. So then he started a Twitter contest. <laughs> you know, finish this sentence. Uh, Lifting a credit freeze to enable credit monitoring is like, dot, 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 uh, installing Flash to watch a Flash video about the evils of Flash. Oh, good one. Leaving your doors and windows unlocked so that burglars can set off your indoor motion sensors. Nice. Taking your gun off safety to check if it's loaded. Oh. Boom. Yeah. And there's a couple other ones (laughs) that were quite as good. (laughs)
0: But, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this brought up info. a
1: story I saw a couple weeks ago Yeah. Uh, where uh, credit monitoring was used to secretly track an ex-wife's financial moves so uh, when they were still married apparently he set up the credit monitoring on them both with his email address or whatever and so now every time she applied for a new credit card or applied to you know, get a mortgage to buy a house or whatever everything she did was reported back to her ex-husband Uh, who maybe used that for whatever. There's a whole news story about it if you want to read about it, but it just goes to show that... Scandalous. It can also be useful to put the freeze yourself uh, because then... Uh, it means somebody can't trick one of the monitoring firms into
0: giving out your information either, right? And she also talked about how difficult it was to shut it down when she's like, I yes. don't want this anymore. And they're like, yeah, but maybe well, you're, you're trying to, to trick Well, you're not the one paying for it. Yeah. So. <laughs> and exactly. yeah,
1: maybe you're the ID thief and you're trying to convince us to turn off the monitoring <laughs> so that you can get away with it.
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, Alan, that's, that's a, that is kind of an obvious solution to a problem we talk about all the time on this show that until Krebs puts it in simple terms like that, I didn't really even think well, of. Well,
1: in particular, the interesting one was uh, they talk about so when you put the freeze on, you'll get a PIN number. And then you use that PIN number when you want to unlock it. And one of the comments was, why don't we set it up so everybody has a PIN number? And when you want a bank to be able to check your credit report in order to give you a credit card or whatever, you just have to give them the PIN number.
0: Yeah, I would like that way more. I'm actually a little offended when I do check my credit once a year, and I see these people that were checking my credit that I had no idea that somehow got authorized. Uh, or. In Canada, you have to actually sign a thing to authorize them to check your credit. Well, here's what Although happened. I don't
1: know how strictly that's actually enforced.
0: When I got the Rover uh, or the truck, I can't remember, one of them did like six checks. Like, blah, 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 like I authorized one, and they just rapid-fire check, 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 check in all these places, and it just I was like, that Whoa, I authorized credit. a single credit check, yep. not six. And it's a little offensive. I wish, I, could, I wish for all those other places they sent my information to, I wish they would have to get a PIN for me. And I could say, oh, I, I will never use your services. No thanks. You don't need to do a credit check. Yeah. That'd have been nice. All right. Well, any other thoughts, Al? Uh,
1: just uh, Krebs says that many of these third party credit monitoring services also induce people to provide even more information than was leaked in the original breach. For example, ID Experts, the company that OPM paid $133 million to offer credit monitoring for 21.5 million Americans affected by that breach, offers the ability to monitor hundreds of websites, chat rooms, forums, and networks to alert you if your personal information is being bought or sold online. But in order to use this service, users are encouraged to provide their bank account numbers, credit card data, passport, and medical ID numbers, as well as telephone numbers and driver's license information. Evil. So then... All someone has to do is breach the ID monitoring service, and they get even more information than they could possibly have got about you from breaching any other place in the world.
0: And we know that's simply a matter of time because they've breached all the, they've breached Experian, they've breached others just like them. It's yep. only a matter of time. Exactly. All right. Good closing thoughts there, Alan. Thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you about something to shake shake it off. That's Ting. Go to TechSnap.ting.com. That's my mobile service provider. And I encourage you to check them out. Not only is it mobile that's just Pay for what you use, it's $6 for the line, and then you just pay for your, what you want to, you know, minutes, messages, megabytes, what you want to use, that's what you pay for. You don't buy some huge plan ahead of time just in case you use 500 minutes or 1,000 minutes, just in case you need 13 or 16 or 24 gigabytes, just in case you need, you, don't, it's, you know, Just if you use 15 text messages or 100 text messages, you just pay for that, and the pricing is really straightforward. Go to techsnap.ting.com to get $25 off your first device, or if you have a compatible device, And you might, because they have a GSM and CDMA network. Well, then they'll give you a $25 service credit. And Alan, check this out. Huge congratulations to Ting. Uh, The Consumer Reports annual cell phone service report is out. And uh, Consumer Reports surveyed 90,000 customers. And Ting links to the report uh, here on their blog. And Ting comes out on top. And one of the things Consumer Reports points out is because you have your selection of CDMA and GSM, yeah, it's a, that's a particular advantage here in the U.S. And, uh, and then you combine that with Ting's fanatical support, you can call them at 1855-TING-FTW, their incredible online dashboard, and their super straightforward pricing that anybody can understand because there's no tricks. And, it's, uh, and what's, why it's a big deal, too, is Ting's been m- moving up the ranks for years now in Consumer Reports. It really is something. Uh, and by the way, speaking of great customer service, next Thursday, I think, or sur- Thursday the 10th, they're going to be giving away a Moto X Pure Edition. Mm. Yeah, really nice, great Google Pure experience edition? phone. was it? Ah. Is oh, that what
1: yeah. They've decided to call the...
0: Uh-huh. And look at this, Alan. Look at this. They're giving away. All you got to do is just comment and they're... Or they like... I'm sorry. Like-ting on Facebook. That's all you mm. got to do, Alan. And then they're going to have an um, unboxing video. You can find out the details on their blog. Ooh. That's a sharp looking phone. That's a great, and so you guys get a, little, you get a little time to get in on that. TechSnap.Ting.com, they got a whole bunch of great phones. They also have GSM SIM cards, which are now available on Amazon, too. I think they're primable, which is just freaking awesome. The Ting SIMs are primable now. Wow. And then also, they have a really great dashboard. they got a video all about that. So go to TechSnap.Ting.com to support this show. Check out their blog. See about, see about that Moto X Pure Edition giveaway. And uh, go read that Consumer Reports. A huge congratulations to Ting on that. I mean, we all knew it. But uh, it's good to see it in consumer reports, too, because uh, that particular type of survey, too, is a really rigorous one. Uh, So it's really awesome. TechSnap.ting.com. A big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program for the whole 2015 year. Thanks to you guys for going to TechSnap.ting.com to keep us going. Yep. Alan, uh, we should do ourselves a little duty here and take a moment to appreciate BSD Now episode 118. BSD Mm -hmm. is go for launch. What's this? Launch? Uh, are you this going up about in space? about re, relaunch D. It's, uh, oh, clever. <laughs> something <laughs> kind of
1: halfway between System D and launch D. Mm-hmm. Launch D is basically the Apple thing. Right, in OS X. That, that existed long before System D.
0: Ooh, also, you guys talk about Let's Encrypt on a FreeBSD Nginx Reverse Proxy.
1: Yeah, so this is all, everything you need for to setting up uh, Let's Encrypt in front of a website. Yeah, including a script that automatically renews the certificate from Let's Encrypt every time it's within fourteen days of expiring.
0: Yeah, that's great. Uh, and it
1: it will all work on things that aren't FreeBSD. It just happens to be include you know for the package command for FreeBSD, but you basically replace that with an apt-get, and it'll work on any of your apt based distros.
0: Yeah, cool. So uh, check it out, BSD Now, episode 118 over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. You can go download the HD version right now, because it's about the midway point in the TechSnap program. And then you'll be ready to go, or just go subscribe via RSS. But Alan, with the news all done, it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the JB website or maybe start a thread over at techsnap.reddit.com. Goran writes in with our first email this week and it's about Proxmox and ZFS, A couple of our favorite things. He says, uh, "Hi, Chris and Alan. I was recently introduced to Proxmox, a Debian-based KVM hypervisor that also has a ZFS support backend. I installed it on a separate drive and set up a mirrored Z, uh, Z pool, I guess, with two terabyte with two two terabyte drives. So far, it runs great. But since I'm planning to deploy it for production use, I wonder if you have any feedback on how reliable and stable ZFS pools run under Debian. I wish to use the ZFS storage for all the VMs because of the performance reliability of the file system." Um, but since Proxmox is not based on a BSD machine, I don't want to end up with corrupted VMs. I know Chris also uses Proxmox at the studio, so maybe he can share some experience with what kind of storage type he uses for his VMs inside Proxmox. I'm a diehard's TechSnap fan, so keep up the great work. And if you ever come to Chicago, the beer is on me. It might take you up on that someday, sir. So what do you think, Alan? What do you think so, about Proxmox and ZFS?
1: Right. So ZFS on Linux is mostly the same ZFS code that's on BSD, and so there's very, very little chance that it will lose your ZFS data uh, or corrupt your VMs. Now, I don't know about the stability of Devi. It's possible it could crash, but it wouldn't delete anything. You would just reboot and it would be fine. Um, and there might be, performance might not be quite as good, but in general, yes, you should be fine with Proxmox, and you'd be better off with ZFS than any of the Linux file systems.
0: I would say specifically with Proxmox too, I mean when I when I hear about running ZFS on Linux, the thing that I think about is not so much is it gonna be safe or is it gonna crash is what's the update process when the distribution updates the kernel you're using? And, and in Debian, um, usually that update process is slow enough that they include all of the individual modules and all that kind of stuff during the main update. And with Proxmox, that's even more the case. You're not going to get a Proxmox update that didn't include the ZFS support, right? Uh, on rolling distributions, you could potentially roll run a risk of where that could potentially happen. Or on some distributions, like in the future with Ubuntu, they're going to use software like DKMS to just build the modules on the fly, which generally always works, but sometimes software fails to build. And then you're left without ZFS support. That's not going to be the problem with Proxmox, though.
1: Yeah, in Proxmox where it's, you know, an appliance, you're probably not going to have any problems like that. Yeah, I don't think so. In general, it should be good.
0: Yeah, I think you'll be set. And, uh, you know, just as a follow-up note to that, uh, I have been using Proxmox since very early after we moved into the studio here. What, a couple of years ago now? And uh, super reliable, super reliable, even handling, like, you know, spontaneous power outages very well. Jake writes in with a question about replacing AutoFS and SIFS. You know, that's sort of like the Samba file system. Yep. He says, the company I work for has an old Gen 2 Linux server running as an FTP server for the developers in the company to pull files from. It uses AutoFS to dynamically mount Windows shares when they need access to them. This system is very old, and we need to update it to a newer OS, but still provides similar functionality. I wanted to ask you and Alan what you would suggest to accomplish this and how to get this done. I was considering using LTS Ubuntu distro. It's something like pure FTPD for the FTP server. All of the, posts, uh, all of the posts on the matter seem very convoluted, and I'm not a Linux admin by any stretch of the imagination. Although I would like to use more Linux in our infrastructure. Thanks for the great shows, Jake. seems like that would work, although I don't understand why you're using an FTP server
1: there. Like, if the developers want it, why don't they just mount the Samba shares directly on their computers instead of going through this other machine? But uh, if that's how you want to do it, it should work okay. Maybe they're working remotely,
0: you know? And, and then they're uploading files. And, yeah. So the dynamic... So
1: Biggest w- problem there is FTP is unencrypted. Which yeah, SFTP F- would so, be... Yeah, using SFTP, so just setting up SSH for them will be much better. Um, other than that, yeah, uh, AutoFS and CIFs should work fine. Uh, you can even do that on FreeBSD. We have a brand new, even better AutoFS thing and the nice S- SMB client. And
0: I, uh, a couple of things jump out at me about Jake's email. Um, kind of want to feel like, Jake, back up and don't do this exactly. Maybe this is a good time to do things a little different, not only because it would be a good chance for you to implement something you're more comfortable maintaining because you say yourself you're not a server admin, but also it would be a good chance to sort of improve the process. So a couple of things that jump out at me is you're using FTP, that's no good. But the other thing is that you're going to end up deploying a Linux server that is going to be exposed to remote login using a fairly insecure protocol Service. Yeah. And you're not. FTP is going to get brute force attacks against it even more than SSH. And you're letting it in through your network, obviously. And not only that, but this box that they can get into your network to FTP files is then has access to your Samba servers. And so this is a really high target box. And you're not familiar with being a server admin. So it makes me a little nervous about you going this route. I would definitely encourage maybe something like own cloud on a DigitalOcean droplet, or even OwnCloud cloud in your own local infrastructure that you have a good way to update because OwnCloud can facilitate as a bridge, it could also has its own sync service that's all over encryption, there's upload mechanisms to use a really nice web interface, and OwnCloud has support for back-end storage like Samba servers, NFS servers, and even cloud storage like Google Drive and Dropbox. So that would be maybe a better system to go with that would be easier for you to maintain and by its very nature way more secure because it's using SSL on all of the ways you communicate with it. Uh, But even beyond that, I would say if possible, just forget this whole back connecting to the Sombra server stuff because that puts that one box in a really kind of delicate spot on your network. Mm -hmm. Well, especially if... You're not a sysadmin, and
1: you're like, oh, I'm going to set this LCS Ubuntu because I won't have to touch it for five years. Yeah, a like, VPN
0: could be another route. A VPN yeah, could be another VPN. route. Um, or just right. a, some other file syncing system like OwnCloud. And you could potentially have OwnCloud. Or, uh, sync
1: thing is also popular. Yeah,
0: yeah, sync thing. If you, didn't want, if you didn't want any kind of a remote web upload interface. The thing about OwnCloud is it's going to give you a really nice web UI to upload files. And then you just install the OwnCloud client on your Windows Sama server, And or Mm -hmm. your Linux box, whatever you're doing your your SIFS, and it could just sync to that, and you could just not even have an FTP server that sits on the edge of your network at all. Yeah, uh, definitely. At least use SFTP instead of FTP. Uh, Most clients like FileZilla will, you know, the user won't tell the
1: difference other than the URL. All
0: right. So John writes in. He says, "Hi, Alan, and hello, Chris. I'm the proud owner of an old Qnap TS four three nine. You know those uh, Intel Atom ones with the four Mm -hmm. three terabyte drives." Since the fine people of QNAP turned this fine machine into a fun park web app store security nightmare, I started searching for an alternative operating system. Now it's possible to run Debian or Arch on it. Oh, that's cool. But I was wondering if I could install FreeBSD on it with ZFS. All I want to do is use ZFS with encryption on RAID something. Maybe Alan could help me here. He's got uh, four 3-terabyte drives. Uh, Team the two Nicks. He'd like to have SSH, NFS, and SMB for admin work and file sharing, obviously, and create users and assign storage to them. He'd like to be able to install security patches, only, and maybe update one or two things as needed over, like, say, uh, SSH. Right. Where would I start uh-huh. with FreeBSD? Or is this exercise so completely? I'm not doomed? that
1: familiar with this particular device. Does it have a monitor? Like, uh, in general, yeah. You would load FreeNAS up on a USB stick and boot the machine off that, and then have it set up the drives, and it can do all the things you listed.
0: Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. It's got one gigabyte of RAM. But uh, mostly i
1: have just like, how is it different than a computer? Like, does it well, not have a screen maybe or like so, no video card output? So
0: three, he's got, he's got three, four terabyte drives.
1: And right, I'm just like, how, got, what do you
0: have to do to actually get an
1: operating system on it? Like he I'm sure it's, it's like a serial port. Debian or arch. Probably but, a yeah.
0: serial install. Uh, then
1: I think that's doable with FreeNAS. I've not tried to do no, a serial install. No, he, I think he wants to install. do straight FreeBSD. Oh, well then, yes, you can do that. That'll work.
0: But but is an it, is it Atom 1.6 gigahertz and a gigabyte of RAM going to run ZFS a with encryption? gigabyte
1: of RAM is low. And uh, if you're using encryption, the Atom doesn't have the encryption offload feature, so it will be slow. So I kind of recommend against that. But it mm-hmm. is possible. It
0: just won't be fast. There you go. There you go. This next question from David perfectly teases the BSD Now show. He says, hi, guys. First, great show. Secondly, I'm sure this question would be probably better at BSD Now, but I listen to TechSnap religiously. Well, now, David, you can start listening to BSD Now, too. Thirdly, the question, just, just a quick one. Alan does a great job of promoting BSD, and he made, kind of made me BSD curious. I'm a longtime Linux user. Ah, oh, damn it, Alan, another one. I run Fedora and do a lot of web development. What BSD distro would you guys suggest I start with? I'm looking for something that will be as familiar as possible, low-friction. And suitable for a BSD newbie. Thanks a million! Cheers, David from Ireland.
1: Yeah, uh, PCBSD uh, will be the closest thing to any like Fedora or Linux desktop distro. Uh, and during the install, you can choose whether you want like KDE, GNOME, LXDE, XFCE, or whatever desktop thingy you like. And uh, from that point on, you will be hard pressed to tell the difference from Linux until you actually try to, you know do something more complicated but
0: is as far PC as what it looks BSD like a distro because it's actually be it free bsd underneath it's, it's right? basically a
1: distro of free bsd kind of like ubuntu is a distro ah, of
0: yeah okay. or or yeah
1: but it, but it but like pc BSD is like one of the only ones that is actually a distro whereas free bsd is a whole operating system
0: is right? it technically possible though to go essentially from a free bsd vanilla install to pc bsd if i like there used it? to be instructions ah. Because it's just a
1: matter of changing the package repo and installing the PCBSD meta package that pulls everything in. Uh, but the main advantages of actually installing PCBSD straight out is that it's all set up with their, uh, all their wizards and like, boot environment stuff and it lays out the
0: disk in a slightly different way that is very cool. So there you go. And if he, and if he just wants to go straight server, then f- f- good old free BSD would be the BSD you your That's the choice. one I know the best. And then also it has that great hand guide uh, handbook. Yes, yes, the handbook is amazing. So that's always kind of a great one. So David, if you're going server side free BSD, if you're to use it for web development, like you mentioned, use Fedora now. Both Alan, I would say PC BSD, by like a landslide. It, not only yes, is that just a good is, way to go for BSD, that's just a good desktop. There is an
1: article that we covered in BSD Now last week, not this week's episode, uh, about a Linux user switching, uh, and he covers you know what he had to do to get something look exactly like his. Kataro or something like that which is based on Fedora so oh Corora Corora uh, Corora or whatever yeah. yes yeah. so it's very very similar to exactly what you're asking about so you might want to find that uh, link in last week's episode of BSD Now
0: I think we just set record time on the feedback, and we answered four questions, which usually yep. is look at us go. You can get your questions answered. Go to JupiterBroadcasting.com/contact and choose TextNet from the drop-down. If you didn't hear your question this week, don't worry. We'll probably get to it next week. We're working through them right now, and we super appreciate them. All kinds of storage, networking, security—we uh, love them. So send them in, and of course, also check out the BSD Now show where they uh, will they answer similar BSD-related questions. All right, with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TextNet roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to go over them and give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And some of these links came from our incredible subreddit for techsnap.reddit.com. Go check that out. I love this first one, Alan. Uh, it's never going to work. So let's just go have some tea. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> let's just go have some tea. <laughs> yeah. So, this is a, a presentation from uh, Usenix Lisa, which is the Large Systems Administrator Conference. And I think the abstract kind of sets the tone here. It says, um, It's difficult to administer large systems. In this talk, Mickens, who we've talked about before, he wrote all the funny things, uh, will argue that we should just give up. Instead of asking large systems to do anything at all, we should focus on less quixotic goals like turning lead into gold or stopping Pokemon from having delightfully idiosyncratic magic abilities. Uh, using case studies involving popular systems for version control and automatic OS updates, James Micken will gradually make himself more and more depressed, and then he will tearfully answer questions <laughs> in a way that makes everyone feel awkward. <laughs> Who would want to see that? Mickens will then sign copies of his book. Note that go. Mickens has not written a book. Nice.
0: <laughs> I like how this yeah. guy works.
1: Yes. Yeah, so actually it's it's really about 30 minutes of, of sysadmin stand-up comedy, uh, but it's great. And we have a and video I highly in the show recommend notes. you watch out the video linked in the show's
0: uh, top of the roundup.
1: Yeah, it, it starts out making fun of dating sites and so on, and and just anyway, I highly recommend it. It was definitely worth watching the whole forty five minutes. Yeah, uh, including the part where uh, because he well while making fun of Git, he uh, um. Uh, gave the bad guy a Star Wars character name and made him wear the Liku. The good, anyway. good. Um,
0: getting Star Wars humor in there too. Because the that
1: came up during the question period. Somebody asked him, you know, with the new Star Wars movie coming out, I'm, you know, going to go back and watch all the old ones. What order do you recommend? Since like that's a thing with Star Wars is what order to watch the movies in. How
0: can that be a thing? Don't you just watch? Well, because it's like. Do you watch in the order that came oh, out? The, oh, you mean the, prequels, the prequels before? Okay. You watch them before. Okay. All right, not? that c- I can understand. I and thought you meant Some people actually
1: be- recommend watching a really weird order that isn't like the old the old 3 and the new 3 or the new 3 and then the old 3 kind of thing. Star Wars. Um Star Wars? Yeah, I know. Uh and so his recommendation was uh watch the original 3 and then look up the synopsis of the
0: the prequels on Wikipedia. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's not bad. That's the best yet. That's yeah. the best yet. All right, OpenSSL has a security advisory. Mm-hmm. Luckily,
1: uh, no high severity things in it, but basically, this was just a regular coordinated disclosure. Uh, so, you know, everybody's known about this for a couple of days that it was coming. And uh, then there was, you know, a bit of a scramble because the new version didn't build properly. And so nobody could use it after <laughs> <Okay>. the <that> upgrade. <laughs> uh, also, it was holding, possibly holding back new releases. I know uh, Node.js was waiting until the new version so they can bundle it and ship. And uh, I think uh, PHP 7 was holding back their Windows build because uh, they wanted to build it against the newer OpenSSL first and a bunch of things like that. So it was you know causing special hullabaloo because it was holding back the release of new things and a couple things like that. But uh, the new version's out, so you should update to uh, 102E or 101Q or 100T or 098ZH. <laughs> hmm. uh, special reminder, though, 100t and 098zh will be end of life as of December 31st of this year. So you have less than a month to upgrade to something new. Otherwise, no more security updates for you. Uh, although at the same time, I expect Red Hat will continue to backport. If does uh, there any supported version of Red Hat that still uses
0: 098? Maybe not. I couldn't tell you not mm-hmm. off the top of my head. All right, I want to tell you about this next story. A couple of a couple of stories on the roundup that uh, get my goat this week. This mm-hmm. one is Microsoft and the data collection they're doing in Windows 10. the register headlines pretty good. It says sneaky Microsoft renamed its data slurper before sticking it back into Windows 10. So Microsoft had this uh, back-end monitoring uh, thing called DiagTrack, and uh, it tracked many things. And uh, it was also uh, it also was sent down to Windows 8.1 machines as well for mm-hmm. a while. And one of the things it tracked was installation of things like SpyBot or CC Cleaner or Cisco's VPN software. And it would actually go through and it would disable things like SpyBot, uh, Search and Destroy, and CC Cleaner. Uh, so it was kind of it was a little aggressive. And they tracked a lot of different information about the user and what they did on the system. And so Microsoft pushed out a patch, KB3022345, uh, that, well, reportedly removed it. But now it turns out that simply Microsoft renamed it. It's still on Windows 10. They just now call the diagnostics tracking service. So the uh, register has an article about that. A lot yep. of lot of tracking things in Windows 10 that make me a little uncomfortable. Yep. Next roundup, sir, is oh ho ho ho! You caught this story. I knew you'd see this one. Uh, HGST's first helium-filled Ultrastar drive, the first 10 terabyte hard drive for mm-hmm. common man.
1: And, and specifically, this is a regular 10 terabyte hard drive, not like shingled magnetic storage or anything like that. So no cheating to get to 10 terabytes. It's actually 10 terabytes of regular storage. Just using helium, huh? hmm They use helium because uh, they can put the platters closer together without getting too much turbulence in between compared to <laughs> regular air.
0: How about that, Alan? 10 uh, terabytes. Can I have so all I have of them, please?
1: I have six, I have 36 of the 6 terabyte version of that, and they were expensive, I don't want to know how much the 10 terabyte one costs. <laughs> yeah. Basically, you only buy the 10 terabyte one if buying twice
0: as many of the 6 terabyte ones wouldn't work. <laughs> that makes my mouth water. All right, this so here's another this is the other story that gets my goat this week. I put these two stories kind of close together. Chrome extensions are tracking you pretty much blatantly. Uh, popular Chrome, Google, Chrome, Google Chrome extensions are constantly tracking you per default, making it very difficult or impossible for you to opt out. These extensions will receive your complete browsing history, all of your cookies, your secret access tokens used for authentication, like i.e., Facebook Connect is a good example, shared links from sites such as Dropbox and Google Drive, the third-party services in use are hiding their tracking by all means possible, combined with terrible privacy policies hidden inside the Chrome Web Store. Uh, and the Defectify team has a great, great post up here. And they go through and, and kind of break down why it's happening, how the technical details of how they're actually making it pull off. They've got it all written out here. Uh, and if I, if I scroll down, I don't these pop ups. If I scroll down here a little bit, I think they do some, do do some name calling. Yeah, like uh, a couple are like Flash Player Plus, Superblock Ad Blocker, JavaScript Errors No Filter, Safe Browse, kind of ironic, FB Color Changer, which is a popular uh, uh, Facebook one. Very clearly changing the color. Speak It, which has a lot of users, does this. Free Smiley's and Emoticon's Surprise does this. And others. Uh, So there you go. And they have details on on mitigation, how you can protect yourself too uh, in this post. So if you use Chrome as much as I do, you might want to take a look. See how you can mitigate this because that's a lot of information they can track about you. Thanks, Google. Thanks, Google. Not a problem for you, though, Alan, Mr. Firefox user over there. Yeah. All, right. Mm-hmm. All right, well, what about this little VPN problem, exposing users' it's, IP addresses?
1: So this is, uh, researchers have found a new vulnerability thing they're calling port fail, uh, and it could expose VPN users' real IP address. That is... So if you're using, uh, doesn't it's not specific to one VPN protocol, gotcha. so it works for IPsec, PPTP, OpenVPN, mm-hmm. whatever, uh, and it... Uh, it's basically a way to actually find out who's yeah. on the other end. It says of the here VPN. these guys
0: discovered that five out of nine prominent VPN providers offer port forwarding and were vulnerable to the attack. Mm-hmm. They said they had notified those people. To mitigate the attack, they suggest VPN companies should implement firewall rules at the VPN server level in order to block access to forward ports from users' real IP addresses to forwarded ports. There you go. From to forwarded ports from users' real IP addresses. Huh. Huh. Well, we'll keep an eye on that story, Alan. All right. So this one is maybe more for people to go check out after the show, but this is a really great one. How about bringing broadband to the last mile uh, through the water pipes? You know what's funny? This was there was a Google
1: um, April Fool's Day joke about about this. doing it through
0: the toilets, right? And using yes. the solar the, the the sewer system to run the wires.
1: Yeah, you basically you would get this thing from Google and flush it, and it would run the cable. And That's they're literally doing the same thing, but through the freshwater line.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of brilliant. So they have a great picture of an installation they did. Huh. Let's do it. I'm ready. I need fiber everywhere. I need fiber everywhere. Of
1: course, everywhere. the biggest yeah. problem is how do you get the fiber to the node to then get it to the house? Up okay. to the sink.
0: Up through the sink, Alan. No, no. Obviously. no.
1: It's, the, that, that gets it from the road to the yeah, house. yeah. How do you get it to the node that then would feed that? The water company becomes the node.
0: The water company becomes the node, right? They're not
1: talking about feeding it to.
0: It's a new business.
1: That to the home part is feeding to the water just to get it from the road to your house. They're not talking about the water mains, don't have room for all the fiber. Yeah. You wouldn't be able to push as much water down the pipe anymore. Yeah. But, you know, when there's a water main break, you know what they usually have to do? They have to dig up the road to mm-hmm, access it. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. running the fiber the rest of the way is the problem at that point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do you do this without having to
0: uh, dig up all the roads? I think it's brilliant in some areas. Okay, so I just, I got to ask you a question. Um, are we about to talk about a security vulnerability in a toothbrush? Yep. Is this actually going to happen? Mm-hmm. Okay, take it away, sir. Yeah,
1: so this is... Kind of a joke. Uh it's it's kind of old, but basically it's a full security advisory for the Oral B Triumph Toothbrush with smart guide professional care ninety-nine thousand. Yes. Uh or ninety nine hundred. But basically it's a toothbrush that keeps track of how much you're brushing where and, and tells you, hey, you know, you're done that side, go over, or you're not, you know, you didn't do over there good enough yet. But turns out you know, all the Communication between the toothbrush and the base station is unencrypted and people could do a denial of service attack or could, you know, learn about where you don't brush your teeth or whatever. But they say a continuous denial of service attack could cause the bristle motor to not send an end of life signal to the smart monitor system, leaving the user to continue using an old toothbrush head, which would eventually lead to dental failure. You would get cavities because you didn't notice that the toothbrush was worn out and didn't replace it. Or uh, dental statistics could be erased from the monitoring unit. This would leave the user unable to determine the re- and uh, report on their brushing habits. Or fake battery life transmissions could be sent, making the user believe that the battery life is in fact longer than is truly stored. This could lead to a catastrophic brushing failure when the toothbrush runs out of power mid-cleaning. A continued long-term attack could lead to the creation of cavities in the user's teeth.
0: A <laughs> denial of service attack against a toothbrush? Yep. That's pretty funny. Okay, uh, so this story—you've got to you know know—I'm sure we've all—it's all crossed our mind. I mean, Google makes their money from advertising and collecting information about people is a huge motivator for them. So, what's the incentive when they created Google for schools, and spe- specifically have worked very hard to get Chromebooks into schools? I'm sure a lot of us have gone, "Hmm, I wonder if there's some data tracking there." Well, the EFF seems to believe so. Uh, they have launched "Spying on Students" campaign to raise awareness about privacy risks of school technology tools. The Electronic Frontier Foundation has filed a complaint today with the Federal Trade Commission against Google for collecting data mining school uh, data and data mining school children's personal information, including their internet searches, a practice the EFF uncovered while researching its Spying on Students campaign, which, by the way, launched today. While Google does not use student data for targeted advertising within the subset of Google Sites, the EFF has found, or in other words, just figured out, that Google syncs The Google Sync feature for the Chrome browser is enabled by default on Chromebooks sold to schools. This allows Google to track and store on its servers and then data mine for non-advertising purposes records of every Internet site the student visits, every search term they use, the results they click on, videos they look for and watch on YouTube, and their saved passwords. Google doesn't first obtain permission from students or their parents, and since some schools require students to use Chromebooks, many parents are unable to prevent Google's data collection.
1: So they're saying today, uh, Google Sync means that they are sending that data. It doesn't necessarily mean Google's using it, but it doesn't mean they're not.
0: Right. It's kind of like how every Android device that backs up to Google is including the SSID and Wi-Fi password to every network it's joined. It right. doesn't mean they're using that data. Doesn't so does mean the clicking. Apple, but... I don't know if that is actually true.
1: I think so. Well, it's, it's so that when you re- upgrade your phone...
0: Yeah, when you upgrade oh, sure. your phone, you and like when like because today I, I literally just restored a phone an iPad today and I had to re-enter in the Wi-Fi passwords. Yeah. And when, when I restored when I upgraded my, my
1: f- phones, I, I took my old Android phone, yeah, my new Android phone, and I went clunk, and then all my stuff was now on my new Android phone.
0: Yeah, like when I I have literally moved from from Nexus device to Nexus device in every Wi-Fi network, which is handy as hell, especially <laughs> for you know um, unadvanced users who maybe would see so what actually really the reason why that's really handy is a lot of times end users don't even realize they're not on Wi-Fi after they've done that, and they end up running their data up like crazy because yeah. they got on also, data the whole time.
1: my Wi-Fi password is this long, so it's yeah. really helpful to not have yeah. to type it out. But at the
0: same time, that does mean they're storing it because mm. they're, they're able to push it back down to machines over...
1: Well, in mine, I was transferring it from phone to phone, which is slightly different.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, all right, so... Let's talk about an article that covers the wrong way to use passwords, which we know there's plenty of those, Alan.
1: Yes. Uh, so this is a Kaspersky's blog, and basically they talk about, you know, uh, some stuff about two-factor authentication and why you should use it. But the worst one is, like, looking at things like the 25 worst passwords of 2014. Well, you know, uh, we'll, we'll probably be seeing that for 2015 soon. Yeah. And again, the predicted trend is that little has changed. We're going to see the same passwords in that top 25, and people still are not learning to stop using those bad passwords. Yes.
0: Although, you know what? I got to say this, Alan. I feel like 2015, two-factor authentication became a little more commonplace. Uh, I, you know, I've got it on Facebook. I think we're kind of in the, uh, the echo yeah. chamber of that. It's yeah. so like, sure, people like us are using more two-factor. Yeah. But
1: your average Facebook user? No. Yeah, you're right.
0: <laughs> you're right. Uh, all right. So uh, next story in the roundup. This one is kind of uh, what I was hinting at earlier in the show. Drug pump maker denies security patches to researcher who found the vulnerabilities. And it's one of these stories where a gentleman uh, went on eBay, bought one of these devices for crazy cheap. Uh, it realized it came with pre-2009 software. He spent less than 100 bucks, by the way. And then he was able to start poking at it and discovering that it had several vulnerabilities. On, on September 23rd, he uh, alerted the uh, ISC at CERT, the U.S. government agency that issues cybersecurity advisors, as we know. Uh, and October, on October 31st he called uh, the technical support line and asked if he could buy a security patch Hospora uh, H- quoted him the price of $175,000 depending on what we need to do with the pump now remember these pumps are deployed all over the place right so that's not practical uh, and I think they're running Windows CE when I was looking into it but I can't oh. recall now
1: because yeah. that hasn't been around for a while
0: that was what he figured when he bought one for 100 bucks off of eBay He's like, well, wait a minute, Windows CE, these are, uh, yeah. So mm-hmm. that's, that's the, the, you do, at the same time, though, like you have to, like how long is the vendor su- expected to supply a software patch to a device like that? Is it based on how, we've tra- how long we've traditionally used that device in operation or is it now based on how long it's feasible to support the technology? Well, it's like, well, first
1: question is, you know, are they still selling it to people? Because oftentimes they are.
0: <laughs> if they are, then, then I think they should be supporting it. But if, say, they stopped selling it in 2010 or 2011.
1: It well, really depends, you know, what, you know, what's the typical lifetime? You know, if it's a pump, it's meant to last 20 years. Right.
0: Then- well, that's my point, though, is maybe we should stop saying that. No, it's not just a pump anymore. It's a computer with a pump. So maybe now it only lasts as long as a computer does. But it seems like. That's not yeah, a very good value, like, is it? No. Especially when they're still crazy expensive. And I,
1: uh, you know, the uh, planned obsolescence like that is something we kind mm. of don't like, mm. but maybe it's something we need, yeah. Uh,
0: so I think somebody who might be a singer has fans, and those fans claim that personal data has been breached. What do you know, Alan?
1: Yeah, so um, Songkick was doing handling the um, advanced tickets for a concert, and uh, several fans say that when they logged in and started buying stuff as they were going through eventually their cart was filled with other people's information and (sighs) their payment details instead of their own
0: due to an extreme load experience this morning some of our customers were incorrectly able to preview limited account information belonging to other customers but we do take security of our users seriously and we apologize for the alarm we have caused to those who purchased or or to those purchasers who experienced any issues (laughs) it's it's not clear how that's even possible (laughs) that's what i was wondering (laughs) <laughs> but, yeah, it's like... They should have said it was yeah. test data. Oh, that was just test data. I've heard that one before.
1: Yeah, so after queuing up for an hour and a half, we uh, clicked the tick as we wanted and got pushed through to another screen, but it had different tickets selected and somebody else's payment information.
0: Hey, uh, did you hear that, that uh, Lenovo managed to scrape the egg off their face long enough to issue a patch uh, for uh, their system update tool? Well, because their system update tool had a bunch of
1: vulnerabilities in it. Mm -hmm. So while it was bad software in the first place because it was doing things it shouldn't have been, it meant that other people could use it to do things, and that's super bad. Yeah, like it says in this article,
0: you could even do crap at the BIOS level. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Have at it, everybody. Have at it, because I'm sure every Lenovo customer is going to get that patch installed right away. I'm sure that's already on their machines. All right. Is the uh, (laughs)
1: Lenovo update software going to update the Lenovo update software? So that you right. have the update.
0: And how many people like that even have any familiarity with the add, or remove, or change features control panel thing? Don't just go in there and take that crap off their machine. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how about this story? More than 900 embedded devices share hard-coded certs, and you guessed it, SSH host keys. Gotta love it, Alan. Yep.
1: So yeah, SSH keys and SSL certs with uh, the same hard-coded IDs, and they found you know, this is more than 4,000 embedded devices from 70 different vendors, including like. Folks like Cisco, Linksys, mm-hmm. Motorola, I mean all of them. TP-Link, yeah, big long list. So it's not clear they mean, you know, 4,000 different models or 4,000 specific devices. Because if it's just a couple of devices and they basically weren't randomizing the keys enough, that's slightly different than if every version of that, you know, every model of that router shipped. Well, with here's, here's
0: what the lan- language is is the concerti- the, S- the security consultant analyzed the firmware images of more than 4000 embedded devices from 70 different vendors so he's personally right. and analyzed he found of those 4000 he analyzed
1: yeah, 90 different ones always shipped with the same fixed key there you go so yeah, yeah it's super bad
0: yeah, super bad. Uh, so this might make you feel better, though. How about a little do-it-yourself project with a Raspberry Pi or something like that? Detecting malware through DNS queries. This was a a, a Pi project that this guy put together. I just thought this was pretty cool. You know, we've all probably thought about how we could easily block some obvious sites and malware at the DNS level uh, for, like, our homeland or our workland. You know, there used to be a time where uh, I had a client who would have me flip Facebook to, to resolve to local host for a while and then flip yeah. it back towards the end of the day. You know, there's always been <laughs> DNS tricks like that. So, this yeah. guy wrote up a really great blog post on uh, catching malware uh, and really detecting it based on the queries that the malware has to do to get out and send its information back and things like that. It's really cool, Alan. But it's super long, way, way too long to cover in the show. Uh, but, and he's been updating it steadily as he's worked on it. And he just posted an update uh, yesterday. So, it's really cool Okay, Alan. Now we have an awesome, awesome GIF for the roundup. It's like a a, very, a, a limited time GIF. <laughs> Games are broken. Part of Mario Super Mario World. Oh, whoa! What's going on here? So this is how to do arbitrary code execution in Mario World. No, in the game he's yeah. able to. How is he able to execute yes. code from in, was inside the game? He's breaking. He's breaking through the game. This is yes. amazing.
1: And it also covers a bunch of other cool. So you see, there you got hit, and then. Yeah.
0: That is really something. Hacking the game That's from crazy. within the game.
1: The only time I managed to crash it is if you get 100 lives, it goes crazy.
0: No, I've had 100 yeah. lives. Oh, no, because you're only supposed to get 99 lives.
1: Yeah. Well, if you trick it into giving you 100, uh, some weird things happen. How do you trick it into giving you 100? Do you remember? I think you get two at a time really quick or something like that. I forget. Nice. I did it once. Nice. And, and then I was sad because I spent all that time doing it and then it basically broke yeah yeah. but they also show a bunch of uh, other tricks you can do like how to fall through yellow blocks or how to have an invisible Yoshi or have two Yoshis at once
0: so it's and legit Mario like is just Super Mario World is just one of the best games ever
1: and that was part 5 so they also cover working uh, of time Pokemon Wind Walker Sonic the Hedgehog and uh, Final Fantasy 7
0: ooh good one. Oh wow good this guy's good Mm-hmm. <gasps> this guy's good. Oh, I, that's a good trick. You know what? This is super cool. Nice find, Alan. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. All right. I'm going <laughs> to be spending some time here. I'm going to be spending some time <laughs> here. All right, Alan, so uh, let's talk a little about Cisco. Let's get back into like the tech stuff here. This one's yeah. uh, no good, is it? Yes, yeah, so this is uh, three different attacks on
1: Cisco TACAX, which is their management system, and basically ways to bypass the authentication system and do terrible things. Mm. There
0: you go. Yeah, three separate attacks. Read them. One, two, three. Lovely. Now this gizmo knows Mm. your Amex card number before you've even received it. How is that possible, Alan? So it turns out the way Amex
1: comes up with credit card numbers is fairly deterministic. So basically using your old credit card number this device can figure out what your new one is going to be. No way, really? Yeah. Uh, So yeah, basically the researcher got a new Amex cuz his old one expired and noticed that the numbers seemed to be not that different and did some math on it and got a bunch of his friends to give him share the same information and he was able to basically his algorithm proved that for all 40 cards he checked he could predict the new number based on the old number including the what the expiration date would be based on when they got the new card. Um so on top of the general problems with this it also means that, you know, your credit card gets leaked in one of these breaches, like Target or whatever, and they send you a new one. I, as the bad guy, know approximately when you got your card reissued because it was around the time of the breach, right? And I know what your old card number was. If I now know your new card number and expiry date by using this algorithm, then I've stolen every credit card you will ever have from Amex possibly. Wow, yeah. That's quite More th- importantly, what this gizmo does is uh, pretends to be the magstripe stripe on the back of the card. And apparently, so the way that the cards indicate to the payment terminal at the store, whether you have chip or pin or not, is just on the magstripe, stripe. And so instead of being like server side or whatever. Uh, so he basically made it copy the magstripe stripe, but flip this one bit. And now the terminal will accept hmm. the card without checking the uh, chip even though it's supposed to be a chip-only card.
0: (laughs) Uh,
1: So basically, this little device, about the size of a quarter, he can basically program it with the new card number that you haven't even received in the mail yet, possibly. Uh, Although I think it only works once you activate it. So basically, your credit card gets stolen, you have Amex replace it, you get the new one, you activate it, I can use this algorithm to guess your new number and new expiry date, program it into this little thing the size of a quarter, and use it on the MagStripe at the grocery store, or whatever, and pay for things using your credit card and basically stolen your credit card before you've even used it.
0: That is incredible. Thanks, American Express. All the
1: details in the article, very
0: cool. I'm sure they'll have that taken care of in no time. I'm sure that'll be solved real soon. Yep. I love this next story. It reminds me of that old War Games movie, because it turns out it was closer than uh, we thought. Newly released documents show that the Soviet Union's KGB developed software to protect sneak attacks from the U.S. and other nations in the early 1980s. Well, almost killed us all. During a NATO war game in November 1983... The software met all conditions necessary to forecast the beginning of war. Many of these procedures and tactics were things the Soviets had never seen. And the whole exercise came after a series of moves by the U.S. and NATO forces to to size up Soviet defenses and the downing of a Korean Airlines flight 007 on September 1st, 1983. So as Soviet leaders monitored the exercises and considered the current climate, they put one and one together. Abel Archer, according to a Soviet leadership uh, uh, at the uh, – so, you think I'm saying that right? Abel Archer? Probably right. Yep. Okay.
1: Abel Archer was the name of the uh, war game that the U.S. was running.
0: Yeah, that's ringed a bell. That's why I was – Okay, according to the Soviet leadership, at least, must have been a cover for genuine surprise attack planned by the U.S., then led by the president, possibly insane enough uh, – a president possibly insane enough to do it. But fortunately, when the military exercise ended, so did the Soviets' fear of an attack. And we didn't all die. Because yep. the software. Yeah. It turns so- out
1: software is not great at predicting what humans will do.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. But in the 80s, we probably <laughs> thought it was. <laughs> all right, I love this one. At Old Sound tweeted, I've built my own crypto. Take two. And it's a, uh, well, it's a padlock. Alan. So it's
1: a padlock on a, on a gate. But it turns out because they use an overly large padlock, they just slid it over and then unlock the gate. Oh, yeah, it's, oh, it's I just, see. Because the padlock's loop so is so long, large, you can slide the you bolt. You to slide the bowl open enough yeah. to open the gate without actually unlocking it. This is a great analogy. Absolutely zero security.
0: There was a I, there was a story in Unfilter where uh, the uh, director of the CIA. Said that one of the things we're most concerned about now is ISIS is creating their own encryption technology and using that to communicate. And I, sp- I stopped right there and I said that would be the best thing for the that NSA could possibly happen. Yeah, <laughs> <You> know,
1: <laughs> it, 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 we'd love it for them to use their own thing yeah. instead of using GPG, which yeah. is hard to break.
0: That's like you know, people ask me, do I use Telegram because it's encrypted? I say, well, no, they're using, they're rolling their own crypto. And they, yeah, they, I'm glad that they have a bounty and that nobody's got it yet, but. I don't trust anybody that really rolls their own thing. Uh, I don't use it for that purpose. You know, anything that's rolling their own, you well, kind of have to look at a sconce. even if they rolling
1: their own, if you are not the only person that has the key, then yeah. Right, exactly. There's Telegram, it's like, oh, we're going to store your key online and yeah. then we'll
0: give it to each of your devices when you sign in. It's right. like,
1: well, then you can decrypt everything I'm doing. So yes. that's,
0: that's the thing. Uh, that's the thing. All right, well, that brings us to the end of this week's TechSnap program. You can participate by going to techsnap.reddit.com to submit stories or join us live over at jblive.tv. We do the show at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is? 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. Boom. You know, we also put it up at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar and it just gets converted to your time zone automatically. So that's really super convenient. Also, can stream just the audio at jblive.fm. And if you prefer the download version, which is like half the length, And doesn't have all of the silly stuff in between. um, Well, you just go get the RSS feed, and you get that sucker delivered to you every single week when the TechSnap program releases on Thursdays. Uh, Or just watch us live. We like that. We love having you in the chat room. And that's it. And you also pick us titles and things like that. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week.